I think so much of our 20s are defined by this push-me-pull-you kind of relationship with our family of origin, in which we are trying to either define ourselves in accordance with or in opposition to. And we're either running towards or we're running away. And that image reminds me of an image that a, a Buddhist teacher once said to me. I was complaining about something. And he said to me, just really in frustration, dog tied to stick. Dog run to stick, dog tied to stick. Dog run away from stick, dog tied to stick. And I realized (laughs) that what he was saying to me was, you got to slip the collar. You got to not define yourself in accordance to or in opposition with. And how do we take from them the gifts and then define ourselves with a collar off our neck? Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Devil Summer Ranch, the home of so many of our Reboot Boot Camps, is truly a magical place. There's just something about the way the bright yellow grass, crisp green trees, against the white of the snow-capped mountains, and the blue of the open sky, on a Colorado October day. It's just spectacular. And the first time I was there, I didn't see any of it. I was so focused on the voices in my head and the fear of being seen and exposed as a fraud. October 2014 was one of the very first Reboot Boot Camps. It was the first time actually that Jerry, Ali, Colin, and I came together as well as partners and facilitators. I'd been Jerry's client for so many years and I had seen Ali and Colin masterfully facilitate and support folks. And here I was just an entrepreneur who was struggling to find his way. Who was I to be with these amazingly talented people? Who was I to support these amazing leaders in the ways that my partners did? And a participant walked up to me early on in the camp and he said, Hey, David. Can we go for a walk? My heart sank. I didn't even have the courage to correct him on my name, Dan. And I remember that walk so well. As we navigated the beauty that was Devil's Slim Ranch, he opened up about his experience, and I couldn't hear him. All I could hear were the voices in my head. He doesn't think I'm any good. I'm doing it wrong. I'm not helpful. And then I started hearing things like, well, Jerry would say something useful here, or Khaled would ask a question here. I struggled because deep within me, I had this nagging sense that I had nothing to offer. I needed Jerry's wisdom. I needed college training or confidence. That Dan was sure he was not enough to be helpful to belong in that space. That Dan was wrong. I think about that walk often. There's a part of me that would love to do it again, but with that version of Dan. First, I would tell him, look up. Soak up the stunning beauty that is Devil Slum Ranch in October. It is amazing. And then I would say, be you. Not your impression of Jerry or Khaled or anyone else that you think has it all figured out. Be you. There is no one with your words, your voice. Be you. That's not only enough, that's everything. You being you, you being fully present, can bring forth wisdom that no one else can bring. You being you is precisely what the clients want, they need your partner needs, what your kids need, the world needs. And it's scary. It really is. But the world doesn't need more Jerry's. The world needs more Dan. Be fully yourself. It doesn't guarantee success. But being who you think you're supposed to be, 
instead of yourself, guarantees pain. Be you. Sunil Gupta is an entrepreneur, teacher, and a Reboot Bootcamp alumni and author of the new book, Backable, The Surprising Truth and What Makes People Take a Chance on You. Through his own struggles to fundraise, he sought out more answers on what it might take for himself and for others to be more backable. And in this conversation with Jerry, we get to hear more of his story, his exploration, and the surprising answers he found in his research. You want to be more backable? Be you. Enjoy. I think that from my experience and the fact that I actually found a ginormous piece of myself that had been um, neglected and, and really um, missing for such a large part of my life, that I can't imagine that there's any other experience that I could have had where I would have had the opportunity to find that or have been supported in this way to allow that to, to come to the surface and have that be part of my experience. And so I'm just going to put out there that I can imagine that there are many people who feel like that they've been trying a lot of things and, and looking in a lot of places to find, if you will, the, the happiness or the wholeness that a lot of us strive to find and, and feel. Mm-hmm. And um, there is no better way to be able to find that than to give yourself the opportunity to have the space, have the guidance, have the compassion and the nurturing and all of the resources that, that you would need to, to do this. Just have the courage to just jump in and, and call this a gift to yourself, uh, mm-hmm. one that you would never regret. I wish I could tell anybody who's like in that place of they're stuck and they're yeah. tired and they're scared and they're lonely. And you could name a thousand other emotions or feelings. Like I just wish that I could tell them that there is a way to see yourself through that. And yes, mm-hmm. you have to walk through it <laughs> and do the work. And there is something there for you that will bring you the most amazing life that you've ever had. Are you in the midst of a major life change and feeling alone in the quagmire of feelings? Are you longing for more meaning in your personal or professional life? Or are you already in the midst of the turmoil and excitement of a business or role transition? The Reboot Quest is a truly one-of-a-kind experience to support startup CEOs, founders, and leaders who are confronted with personal and professional questions that simply won't go away. You'll return with the more authentic self emerging, seeing more clearly your work to be done in the world. To learn more and apply for the Reboot Quest, go to reboot.io slash quest. Sunil, it's Jerry. been too long. Give us an introduction. Yeah, Sunil Gupta, I uh, am the author of a new book called Backable, which is all about, thank you, which is all about the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. I got really interested in that topic as a founder, which is when we first met, which we'll come back to, but expanded it to all these different industries, interviewing Oscar-winning filmmakers, celebrity chefs, uh, founders of iconic companies, military leaders, et cetera. I now teach the topic at Harvard, 
and enjoy spending a lot of time with people across different industries, helping them to find ways to become more backable. Yeah. And we'll circle to the book uh, in a minute because uh, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, in some ways I found it super useful uh, in giving me language that I can help entrepreneurs with and help them understand, you know, in many ways, the fundraising journey, that part of the process of, yeah. you know, essentially asking themselves, why did they say no? Right. And I think you really do a good job of just sort of unpacking that. But Let's 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 time travel seven years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I think you came to our second ever boot camp. So you actually predated uh, the establishment of Reboot. Mm. How's that for interesting? And uh, <laughs> as I remember, you were pretty lost at the time. Is that yeah. a fair statement? <laughs> I think it I think it it's certainly a fair statement, considering I don't necessarily feel that much more found right now. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't, I can't only imagine how I felt seven years ago. <laughs> what was going on for you seven years ago? Yeah. You know, I had just started a company called rise, which is a one-on-one -on -one health coaching service. I got inspired to start the, the company because I'd seen my father really struggle with his health. And, you know, he, he had his first triple bypass surgery emergency when I was about nine years old. And I remember we went to the hospital and it looked like he had aged 20 years over overnight. And one of the things I remember most about that experience is that we were driving home and I was looking at all the paperwork that they gave us. And one of the pieces of paperwork had something like, you know, it was basically diet and it had things like eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. <laughs> we were an Indian family. Like we didn't, we didn't eat broccoli. We didn't eat Brussels sprouts. Right. And there was nothing, there was nothing on that piece of paper about chicken, chicken tikka masala. Right. right. And so, you know, lucky for us, insurance ended up helping pay for the cost of a nutritionist. And this mm -hmm. was somebody who really helped customize a healthy diet for our lifestyle, something that mm -hmm. would actually stick. Mm -hmm. And I believe my father is still alive today, knock on wood, because, because of the time that we spent with that person because of the coaching that we received. And, um, and the thing about that is it's expensive. It's an expensive service, especially if you're not very sick or very rich, it's tough to have somebody like that in your life. And so I wanted to create something that would, that would make that affordable. And that's what rise was all about the service. But when I, when we first met Jerry, I was out there, uh, pitching the idea to investors and I was getting rejected by everybody that I pitched. And I was, it was frustrating for me because I felt like a, this was, you know, not only just a meaningful thing that could help a lot of people, but B, I felt like, Hey, this is like a pretty, this could be a pretty big market opportunity as well. I mean, look at all the people out there that are looking to lose weight, struggling with diabetes and hypertension and obesity. Um, but I wasn't able to tell the story in the right way. And that's around the time that you and I met. I, I remember uh, sitting in circle, we were at Devil's Thumb Ranch, and I remember the sense I got from you, and forgive me if it's a projection, but the sense I got from you was, I used the word lost before, but it was a very specific thing. It was a kind of combination of being angry and scared. Mm. And it was, um, the anger was a kind of, I'm not being understood. I'm mm. not I'm not 
I'm not getting the, the hearing that I know this idea deserves. Hmm. Coupled with, and you do reference a little bit of this in the book, uh, coupled with the fear of like, hmm. what happens if this fails? Uh, did I remember correctly? I think you did. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, you know, when, when I think we're at that stage, I think one of the things that I took from boot camp that has always stuck with me is that you are not your startup. Mm-hmm. And the reason that that matters based on what you just said is because it wasn't simply that I didn't feel like the idea wasn't being heard. I felt like I wasn't being heard. Yeah. It felt like if somebody was rejecting the idea, then by nature, they were rejecting me. And, you know, now having gone through the process of spending, you know, five years looking at how ideas are formed and how people sort of, you know, go from point A to point B, do I realize that there has to be a decoupling along the way that you have to separate yourself? Because if you don't, then the fear will, will, will sort of overtake you, right? You're never really going to put yourself in the room the right way because it's almost as if you're not representing the idea or the purpose you're representing yourself or, you know, and I, I would argue now you're representing your ego, right? Which is yeah. just never, which is just never as effective as it, as, as, as it would be if you're representing the people that you want to serve. I didn't get that at the time. I didn't, I didn't get that. Every rejection was a rejection of Sunil Gupta and it hurt. It hurt bad. So I think that's one of the things that I took away from boot camp, which just, I mean, it changed my outlook. Hmm. I, I remember having a conversation. I think we went for a walk. And I remember having a conversation about family structure and family dynamics. And you told me about your mom. Uh, and as you detail so well in the book, your mom was, was one of the first engineers, first women engineers at Ford, rather, not first engineer, which was an extraordinary accomplishment and, and needs to be lifted up and elevated and amplified. Um, not that your dad was a slacker, but, you know, um, but, but I also had the sense of you being the youngest. Mm. And it was a kind of like trying to punch above your weight. <laughs> it was like, you know, I'm a former boxer and it's, there's a feeling of that. It was like this kind of feeling and, and it was like this um, bottled up energy of, and, and I think you just named it well, is this sense that I'm being rejected. And, um, you know, I think part of that story, and it, and it all came back to me when I was reading your book, part of that story is I think that like every other human being, I'm going to say that again, like every other human being, you were being impacted by child wounds. Mm. And the wound I think that we may have been carrying was, I'm over here. Don't Mm. forget about me. Mm -hmm. A kind of invisibility. Mm. Which then you put yourself in a situation where you're being judged right? Because that's what we do with the business plan. We're out there, especially when we marry our sense of self. And in a sense, perversely, the fear of what, of the rejection gets reconfirmed again and again and again. Does that resonate at all? 
It does, Jerry. And you're, I know, I know the button. Like I'm like thinking to myself, I'm looking at the time and thinking to myself, can I make it through this without crying? Or is this, is this, <laughs> is this, is this bastard, is this bastard going to make me cry? I've literally done about a hundred podcasts now and I've gone through all of them without crying. Is this going to be the one? Um, yeah, no, I, you know, it, it, it hits too close to home is the answer. It's too close to home. And, you know, it, 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 you know, so my older brother, Sanjay, he's 10 years older. He's a third parent to me, mm-hmm. always has been, you know, I, I call, I call, it's funny. I call both you and him, my OB1s. Oh. All right. Like just always, it's, oh, I'm we're, always going to learn. We're something. texting each other right now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like, ask him about the time that he, so, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I think Sanjay, um, just, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think Sanjay is just so extraordinary and so, in so many ways. And I have, you know, he, he for, yeah, he's he is CNN's chief medical correspondent. His name's Dr. Sanjay Gupta. An amazing backable story, by the way, which we can get into. Which is how do you, as a as a neuro as as a neurosurgeon who has no on air experience, who's practicing in suburban Michigan, convince mm-hmm. the people at CNN to take a chance on you? Um, remarkable story. I think very much rooted in in my mom's story as well. Um, but I, I think that there's always sort of a sense of kind of kind of living. I think in in, in the shadow uh, of when when you're sort of raised. I think in a family like this, and I think it's cut both ways. I, you know, on the one hand, you're right. There, there. I've had to get over. I think a sense of yeah, you know, what am I all about? And I think that there's the sense of do you want to be a second rate version of somebody else or do you want to be a first rate version of you? And, and if the answer is the first rate version of you, then what is that? Right. And, and that's complicated. It's a, it can be a complicated question to, to answer. And I think to a certain degree, I'm, I'm still trying to answer it. But then the other, the other part of it though, is that like, you don't, even if I agree that there's like a separation here, I want to be out of the shadow. There's just, there's so much learning as well from my mom. There's so much learning from my brother that I don't want to turn my back on either. So in some ways I'm trying to sort of thread this needle, which is like, gosh, I respect the hell out of him. He's such a great teacher. He want like, he's always wanted to invest in me. He's always wanted to be that person for me. And I don't want to turn my back on that. I want to learn everything I can from him because I admire the hell out of him. But at the same time, I want to be my person. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and I didn't know, if, honestly, if we were going to either A, make you cry or B, talk about your brother. But but because I'm really here to talk about you and your experience, you know, and I want to acknowledge that all of a sudden we there we go again. But your story. So I think so much of our 20s are defined by uh, this push me, pull you kind of relationship with our family of origin Mm -hmm. in which we are trying to either define ourselves in accordance with or in opposition to. Mm -hmm. And we're either running towards or we're running away. And that image reminds me of an image that a, a Buddhist teacher once said to me in which he said, I was complaining about something. I was always complaining about things. And he said to me, just really in frustration, dog tied to stick. 
Dog run to stick, dog tied to stick. Dog huh. run away from stick, dog tied to stick. And it it was I had the same look on my face that you have right now, and I realized <laughs> that what he was saying to me was, "You got to slip the collar. Hmm. You got to not define yourself in accordance to or in opposition with." And that's what I just heard you describe. Yeah, in being able to be in relationship with the original family structure. Yeah. And being able to take from that family structure, the lineage, the legacy. And by the way, we're talking about your mom, we're talking about, you know, your brother, but how about your grandparents? How about their parents? Because lineage is like that. Ancestors are like that. Yeah. And how do, how do we take from them the gifts and then define ourselves with a collar off our neck? Huh. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I really do. And there's so much, there's so much that, you know, I, I think you, you don't realize how shaped you are by those stories, you know, right. often, because oftentimes they're not the stories that you even sort of haven't had in front of your face, but they define, they ultimately define who you, who you are. You know, my grandmother and my mom was, my mom spent most of her childhood in this, in the refugee camp and her mom, uh, you know, came to the United States just a few months after I was born. And so, and so, you know, my mom and her, and, and her mom hadn't seen each other in person for, for decades. The only way of communication was mainly letter writing. And now they were sort of reunited. The thing about my grandmother is that she spoke a very certain specific dialect uh, that I just did not understand. And so when she arrived in the country, my mom was working. And so she took care of me. My parents worked long hours. She took care of me, but we couldn't speak the same language. And uh, I, I always thought of that as a burden. Like I remember thinking about that as annoying. It's an annoying, that was an annoying part of my childhood. Mm. What I realized while I was writing just this book, just uh, this just clicked for me recently was I was trying to figure out as a first time author, why like some of these conversations were getting to the points that they were getting to where I was actually getting really, really good stuff. And I, have a, I don't have a background as a journalist. Why was I able to sort of have conversations at that level? And I, one day it kind of hit me. My grandmother and I couldn't communicate through words. And so we had to communicate through emotion. And that made me, that forced me to become a listener at a not in a nonverbal way. Mm. It, it forced me to have to pay attention to like the essence of like what's going on with somebody. And that is, and that has made me a good teacher. It has made me a, a strong writer. It has mm. made me able to be with people in the present moment. And I never, and I, not only did I, Jerry, not give her credit for that. I almost looked at that entire experience as a burden, not mm. a gift. Um, I, I hope this makes you laugh. Well done, young Padawan. <laughs> I mean, he, he, here's the thing. First of all, what did you call your grandmother? Nani. Nani. Okay. What did she smell like? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Recall yeah. her. Yeah. Right. What you just did in an incredibly skillful and beautiful and very human way 
was reach back in time, time traveling to your ancestors, to the source of strength, to the source of love. And you realize something. I mean, I'll use my language for what you described. You want to know the most backable quality? It's presence. It's like living yeah. from your solar plexus and being fucking real. Hmm. You got, quote, good stuff from people because you showed up. Hmm. Want to know why I make people cry? Because hmm. I show up. Yeah. Right? I wasn't going to let us just do this, you know, hey, here's a promotion. Because mm. you know me. Right? That's not what this is about. And you didn't write this book so that you'd make more money. Because I know the book economics. <laughs> 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 I think you wrote a book for the guy who wandered into the Devil's Thumb Ranch thinking he was going to get answers to fundraising, but instead was told, no, you actually have to look in the mirror. Mm. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you talked about just a couple minutes ago was this idea of fear. And you brought something up for me, which I think I, I mean, I do talk about in the book, but you're making me think about it in a different way, which is that um, I, I still remember Brad Feld was part of our group. And, uh, and I remember, I remember when Brad and he was, you know, he was, he was there to, to kind of, I think be a pseudo coach as well. And, and during one of the breaks, I was like, Brad, how did you sort of like break through? Like, what were the, what was the moment where you felt like you were really starting to make some progress here on yourself? And he, he did this thing for me. He said, you know, every day I would wake up and I would say to myself, oh God, what fucked up thing is going to happen today? Mm -hmm. the breakthrough happened when I would wake up in the morning and I'd sort of like clasp my hands together and start rubbing them together and say, all right, what fucked up thing is going to happen today? <laughs> right. That was the, that was the breakthrough. And it was, I mean, look, you told the story of Milarepa in, 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 in class, right. Which is like, it's eat me, eat me if you wish, right? Like we should, we should, we should, we should go back to that story. But like, I think about that all of the time, which is like, you can try to tuck fear away, put it in a room and lock it away. But the banging is just going to get louder and louder and louder. At some point in time, you've got to open that door and you got to look at it and you got to inspect it closely enough. I think to realize that, a lot of what it's telling you probably isn't all that it doesn't have a lot of basis, right? Part of the reason that I, I, I think I put it in a room is because it comes back to exactly what you said, which is like, uh, it wasn't about my idea. Fundamentally, if I, if I started to kind of look at it closely enough, it wasn't like your idea isn't good enough. It's you aren't good enough, right? I didn't want to face that. Well, and that's the chorus that you've been heard, hearing, almost like a Greek chorus since you were a little kid. Yeah. And that's what makes that fear so loud and so difficult. And 
what you, what you, the way you adapt it to the fear is the way most of us adapt to the fear. You shut the door. You don't look in the closet. You don't look under the bed, right? You don't see the monster. And the, and the belief system is that, that that somehow will make it go away. But if you want to personify it or anthropomorphize it, that fear, that monster that you're speaking to, Miller Repper, gets pissed off. Because what it's saying is, pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, not only you're, you're you're right that when we when we when we look in the mirror and we deal with it, and in your case, it might have been the reason I'm not getting funding is that I'm not good enough. And so in a sense, I'm going to research and write a book to understand what makes somebody, quote, good enough to be backable, right? Okay, intellectual response to an emotional challenge. Perfectly fine, super helpful. But I think that the journey of looking at that question feels like it may have forced you to actually look at yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, when I was in starting the journey of writing my book, a dear friend said to me, oh, this book's going to kick your ass. And she said it with a certain amount of glee. <laughs> um, when you endeavor to answer those big questions, what you're really doing is turning around and facing the demon that's chasing you. Right. And that's what I think he did with the book. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that's right, Jerry. So much of it came back to, I think, emotional transformation rather than intellectual transformation. It wasn't the hand gestures. It wasn't the eye pacing. It was, it was, it wasn't the contact, like the eye contact. It was more about, it was more about sort of the human qualities that I think, you know, the, the transformation that I think we sort of make to ourselves in order to have that level of presence that you're, that you're talking about. You know, I mean, I think I started writing this book in earnest, starting putting, putting pen to paper about five years ago, but over 15 years ago, this is 2004. I was backstage at the democratic national convention. Um, I was a junior level writer and there was someone backstage who was about to get up on stage and, and give his speech, and no one knew who he was. Nobody recognized him. And it was a state senator from Illinois named Barack Obama. And when he got up and gave that speech, the world seemed to be watching him. But because of where I was standing, I, I felt like I was sort of watching the world. And I was watching the way that they were responding to him. And I really, in that moment, got hooked into the power of, of story and like what it can do. It was only an eight minute speech, very short, but it was transformative. But w- when I started to go back in time, I, I, I became obsessed with, I became, I think, one of millions of people who became sort of obsessed with Barack Obama that night. And I started to kind of dig deeper and deeper into the story. And what I realized is that four years before that, he had run for Congress, not for Senate, not for president, and he had lost, and he had lost big. This wasn't like a close race. He lost by a two-to-one margin. But was, what was even more surprising to me was the way that he was received in that campaign. People described him as boring, as stilted, as professorial. There was a, a reporter named Ted McClelland who covered the campaign, 
And he, after the end of the campaign, said that Barack Obama is so dry that he literally sucks the air right out of the room. Mm. And then four years later, just four years later, he is now this bastion of hope and of energy and of inspiration. And I think it just goes to show that, like, you know, it's not just this intellectual transformation that people can make. It's an, it's an emotional one. You can literally transform, you know, who you are. Um, but, you know, as I dug deeper and deeper and deeper into, like, what happened during those four years, very little of it had to do with, with the techniques. More, much more of it had to do with, like, who he was. You know, uh, your, your point is really important because I think when people look at the development of a speaker, especially if they're trying to sort of develop their own capacity to present, they do focus on the technique. And, um, and it, it's not that technique doesn't matter, right? Having a good PowerPoint presentation or pitch deck when you're fundraising is really important. Having the numbers is really important. But what we're talking about is having that presence. And, you know, your story reminds me of something that happened to me just before my book uh, came out in June of uh, 2019. I'm getting old. I may have told this story on the podcast before, but I don't think I have. I have been scheduled to speak at the Recode conference which is a pretty big conference and yeah. I really admire uh, the folks. And it was just before uh, the book was coming out. So as you know, when you get caught up in the startup known as the book, right, you're sort of tracking all opportunities and all this stuff. And uh, I flew down to uh, Arizona uh, for the conference and it was hotter than hell. It was literally like 110 degrees outside. And I flew down on a Sunday and my, my talk, I, I was being given two different spots. I was given, I forget what they call it, but one of the 10 minute slots and then a class. And the class didn't bother me at all because I can talk forever. All right. And you know, if I've got a captured room of people in a circle, I'm totally fine. But the 10 minute talk, how the fuck am I going to say what's important <laughs> in 10 minutes? I can never do that. Right. So um, I fly out early because I have to quote, do a dress rehearsal. Mm. I've given thousands of speeches before. I've never done a dress rehearsal. Right. The concept of doing a dress rehearsal drove me crazy. Mm. So Monday morning breaks, I've got the dress rehearsal set for like 11 o'clock and I am, my anxiety is through the roof. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Right? I, I've never done a 10 minute version of the talk that I developed, you know, you developed talk and all this stuff. So anyway, I run out, I get there, I'm in the green room. It's a completely dead, there's no audience, right? There's only like four people in the room completely dark, but it's seat 700. Mm. And there's this bump, 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 intro music. <laughs> okay. And you know me, like intro music is not the thing I do. <laughs> okay. So I go out and I start to do the talk and I'm like, I stumble. And I can see the woman who had recruited me to do the talk, just put her head in her hand and go, oh my God. 
Oh, and I, no. And I try again and I cannot do it. And I'm lost because I realize I feed off the energy of real people. It's a connection. All right. So I finish up. I get, I get back to the hotel room. I call my friend Seth Godin. And I was like, Seth, I'm just, I'm, I'm beside myself. This is a wreck. I'm a wreck. And I start talking about this and I'm having a panic attack. And he says to me, Jerry, you're forgetting one thing. You're Jerry Colonna. Hmm. You don't have to be or do or anything else. What would you do if this wasn't, quote, so important? Hmm. I said, well, you know, I'd go out there and I'd say to the audience, how are you? And you're smiling because, you know, that's what I would do. And that's what I did. Hmm. Now, I don't know if it was a good talk or whatever, but I was me. It was your talk. It was my talk. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that's the key that, I, that, that, that really sort of leaps off for me, is that that's what I think you're getting to in this notion. Of all the qualities that one would say is backable, being yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Charlie Parker has, I think, just this amazing quote. It's also, it's also frustrating because I'll, every once in a while I'll come across a quote and I'm like, okay, they just said in 10 words what I, what I, what I spent five years writing a book saying. Right? <laughs> like Charlie Parker one day, is, is, he's, he's getting off stage, famous jazz musician, and somebody's like, yo, hey, Charlie, how do you have such incredible presence on stage? And he, and he looks at this young, this young person who asked him a question. He's like, look. You got to learn your instrument. You got to practice, practice, practice. And then when you get up on stage, you got to forget all of that and mm. just wail. Mm. Mm. Right. I, I love that. I, 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 I truly love that because I think it, it, it very much cuts to the essence of being back. Well, the fact is in this, in this situation, you knew that content cold. I mean, you've been, you've been living and breathing that content. You've been teaching that content and coaching that content. The last step was really just forgetting yourself and just wailing. Yeah. And, 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 and I think it's the same thing when you're writing. It's just, you, you, you go through that whole experience and then you let it go and you just tell your story. And, uh, you know, we're saying just, and Charlie Parker was saying just in effect, and that's kind of the hardest part to go way back to the beginning when we were talking about defining ourselves in opposition to or in accordance with. Mm-hmm. You know, I was talking about in terms of family or of origin, but you can you can say we all get tripped up by trying to define ourselves in opposition to or in accordance with mm-hmm. who we see as entrepreneurs or who we see as successful leaders or who we think we're supposed to be as adults, right? And in effect, Charlie Parker's advice holds through throughout all of it. Just well. Just well. I think you're doing a mitzvah by doing the work that you're doing right now. I think you're, you're, you're tapping into the reality of your experience, right? Um, sharing from that heart and then encouraging people to just lean into all of that at the same time. And you're not the, the guy I met. 
seven years ago. I mean, you're the same person and you're different. Who are you now? Hmm. It's funny because when you, when you're asked that question, the first thing you want to go to is the LinkedIn profile, but that's not what I want to do. Right. I, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I'm somebody who, I'm somebody who tells stories. I'm somebody who gathers, collects really good stories and, and share that I think are meaningful. Um, and I share them. That's what I, that's, that's, I think that's fundamentally what I am, who I am. Yeah. Every, every morning I play a game with my daughters. I have an eight year old and a four year old and I asked them Sammy and Serena. Mm -hmm. So Sammy is the eight year old. Her, her real name is Samara and Serena. And we play a little game and I ask him two questions and it's based on this quote from Picasso. I ask him, what is the meaning of life? And they say to me, because they know this by heart to find your gift. And I say, well, then what is the purpose of life? And they say to give it away. And I feel like, you know, my, my, my dad wasn't much, he wasn't much older than I am right now when he had that emergency triple bypass surgery. If, if something like that were to happen, I try to keep myself in good health, but who knows, or something happens. I have so much, I have so much, it makes me so happy to know at least that they have the answers to those two questions memorized by heart. So I got to ask you a question. Yeah. What is your gift that you give away every day? Stories. Jerry, stories. I, I, uh, I'm obsessed with learning people's stories and, and, and let's get more specific than that because story, story can, can mean a lot of things. I think the way that we see the people we admire is the current version of their story. Mm. And I, and I think that's interesting. I'm, I'm interested in that, but I'm fascinated by where that story began mm. and I'm obsessed with what happened in between. Because, 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 you know, oftentimes when we rewind the tape, we kind of realize that, gosh, that's a very, very different version. I mean, you're, you're saying to me that I'm a different version of who I was seven years ago. I feel different. I feel different. And sometimes I get really, um, uh, I go to these, I, you know, now that I'm, I'm, I'm in front of people who are sort of, you know, at that stage in their journey, sometimes I think they make the mistake of, believing that I was always the way that I am right now. Mm -hmm. And that's just simply not true. Right. Mm -hmm. Just as it isn't for you. I love that quote, which is like, if you can't look back at an early version of yourself and be embarrassed, then you're not growing fast enough. Right. But I think, but again, I think that, that, that part of our story sometimes gets missed because it's not in our bio. It's not on our website. It's not on our LinkedIn profile. It's certainly not in the, in the 280 character description. So then wh who, who is out there sort of sharing that growth, what happened in between. And I think that's a, that's part, that's, I'd like to play a, a, a meaningful role in that, in that, you know, in that space. Well, I think you're doing it. I think you're, you're, you're there. And, and, you know, I'll speak as another elder brother and, and just say, keep going, keep, keep exploring, you know, keep in that process. Um, because that process itself 
creates a gift. And, and uh, you know, our job is to pass it on. Mm. Um, you know, we we're really fond of a quote from David White, the poet, which is good work done well for the right reasons. And um, love that. This feels like good work done well for the right reasons. You know, perhaps when you launched the uh, startup, you weren't 100% sure of what the reasons were. Mm. Um, and now in the startup that is you right now and all the iterations of it, I think you're closer to understanding the why, which is everything. It's everything. So. So Neil, I want to thank you for coming on the show um, and sharing your story and being with us. And I want to thank you too for the work that you're doing uh, now. It makes me proud to know that I played a part in nudging you along, if you will. A huge part, a huge part, Jerry. I'm so grateful to you. Thanks for having me on the show, but more, more importantly, just thanks for being part of my life. And you know, I'm, I'm in your corner and I'm so grateful to have you in mine. Yeah, uh, well, that's the image I want you to have is, uh, as we, we always say, you're not alone. And if you look over your shoulder, maybe nanny's there, maybe brother's there, maybe mom, dad, and I'm there. I'll put myself there as well. <laughs> so you be well, my friend. Thank um, you, sir. Thank you for coming on. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Ready for a more in-depth journey of radical self-inquiry? We've developed a new free five-day email course designed to explore and work with your shadow. Get started at reboot.io slash shadow.